Hey, this is Larry Romano, and you are listening to What a Character, the podcast dedicated to character actors. Hey everyone, this is C. Thane Dixon, and on today's episode of What a Character, you will hear part two of my interview with Daniel Roebuck, where Daniel will discuss about how he almost got the role of Marv in Home Alone, his transition from actor to director, and the brilliance of the late, great Norm MacDonald. It's all that and more on today's What a Character. Hey everyone, before we get on with the show, I just want to tell you all about how you can help make this podcast a smash hit. As many of you may know, the success of a podcast all depends on the support of the audience. A good number of subscriptions, likes, and listens can help us attract high-profile guests, thus making the podcast a success. So let's say that you enjoy this show and you want us to make more episodes. Well, you can help us make that possible by subscribing to us and leaving reviews on podcast platforms such as Spotify, iTunes, and Stitcher, by liking and subscribing to us on YouTube, or by following us on social media. You can find the links to our YouTube channel as well as our various social media feeds in the episode description. And if you're watching this on YouTube, don't forget to like and subscribe. Your help will be greatly appreciated. Now, on with the show. So in 1990, uh, you were originally cast as Marv, uh, the Daniel Stern role in Home Alone, but uh, it, it didn't work out. What, what happened between you and Pesci? Was it the just the chemistry not working? or? Yeah, I mean, you know, look, they, they, that, that was a great story that nobody knew about. Uh, and I had, been, I had written about it in this book, and so... They kind of buried my lead uh, with that music show, but they don't really tell the truth. Unfortunately, well, they they kind of say to me. So they wanted Chris Columbus and John Hughes wanted Daniels and uh, Joe Pesci, and uh, Stern wanted too much money for whatever, and then they gave me the part because they were going to force Stern to take less money. So the whole point of hiring me was just to do with him. Uh, they were never going to film me as Marv. I was never going to be Marv. Now, that's the one thing they never say. I was never, ever, ever going to film as Marv. I got the wettest handshake of my life from John Hughes. It was the most disappointing handshake I ever received because I was a fan of the guy. And he clearly didn't want me to be there. It was all so obvious. And I was only there for like four days um, and then there was a terrible snowstorm and I couldn't leave after they fired me. I got stuck there. Uh, <laughs> but you know, I was so dumb. I'm like, well, I, you know, I recommended, uh, Bobby Madeira. I recommended other actors to take my place. I didn't know that it was a fate of before I even went there. Now the joke was on them because years later I took out a girl who happened to at the time had been dating business affairs guy. So I got all the information. I know everything that happened. Because the business affairs guy, these guys are trained to screw over actors. They would come home and they'd be like, we're screwing over this guy for no reason, you know, because <laughs> they didn't want to pay me after, after they fired me. They had to pay me. Now, here's, so that's kind of it. I with Things that disappoint me, Chris Columbus said, I will give you a uh, Great part in my next movie. Now I notice he's done 
20 since then, and he's never called. Um, but what really was disappointing was, you know, no one ever just told me the truth. So, so here's the, here's the 2020 hindsight. Uh, I didn't have to be in Home Alone. So that was hard when it came out, and it was the number one movie in the world months in a row. Right. That was hard. Home Alone 2, it was hard. I wasn't part of the sequel of Home Alone. But here's the deal. Cullen, I wasn't in Home Alone, which meant I didn't ever have to be the guy who wasn't home. So Daniel Stern then, like if you go roll to roll or whatever, so Daniel Stern then became a million-dollar movie actor. Mm. Not Brad Pitt, and he's not going to put a million seats in. Right. So the million dollars a movie probably got less for those Billy Crystal movies. But, you know, 500000 600000 anyway. Whatever he got, that's what he got, a million dollars, whatever. So that's fine. But then what? Then what? Then you're a movie star whose self-value is a million dollars or $500,000, and then nobody gives you a job because right. you're not worth it. Like, you're never going to put that much money back into the movie. So Daniel Stern, because he did get to start Home Alone, Go to 1990, go to my IMDb, go to his IMDb, and then look what's happened since. Right, and right. It, you know, it's mind-blowing. And by the way, the money, whatever, a million, two million, three, that money's gone. Nobody has that. That was 1990. Uh, you got to work with Mel Gibson and We Were Soldiers. Uh, what, what was it like working with him? Well, he was. I was not in a scene with him, so we, we only crossed paths a little bit. Uh, you know, I'm growing impressed by this acting and his ability as a director. Uh, so I was happy. That movie was really about, uh, you know, I told you I read fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, being part of a Colonel Moore story was an extraordinary blessing. Um, the strangest thing happened. I was at a event at the Ronald Reagan Museum, and uh, it was for Medal of Medal of Honor Awards, I think, or Medal of Honor Awards. And this this old guy says, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know who you are. <laughs> and he goes, you're the medevac. Uh, you're the guy who sent Greg Kinnear into the, into the shit. And I was like, uh, yeah. He, I go, how, did you like the movie? He goes, Greg Kinnear was playing me. <laughs> Precious wow. event, and he's staring at me, thinking he's just like the guy that I had to pull a gun on four years earlier. Isn't that something? Yeah, it is. Extraordinary blessing of a life. You, you worked with Norm Macdonald on his series "A Minute with Stan Hooper." Everyone who has worked with Norm has a great Norm Macdonald story. What What can you tell us about what it was like working with Norm? Well, Norm oddly is a in the first place, although he's a comedian, he's a very great actor, by the way, something you may not know about. He is a very great actor, very good. He is a very good comedian, comedian and a good comic actor. I think he'd be, uh, if I ever got around to it, we'd put him in a regular movie. Fantastic. Uh, but he didn't rehearse because he was also one of the writer producers. Uh, and we had the great Barry Kemp, was like the, the guy who gave us coach was the overseer of what we had. So I don't know 
I, I me, Dan, I would have just let Barry Camp make his series. Uh, but Norm is Norm. So uh, he didn't rehearse. We had a great actor who rehearsed in his place. Uh, but it's not the same as having a guy. You know, it's just not the same. So we would rehearse all day, and then we, Norm would come in and he'd do the show with the, the network because you do it the network, you know, consistently all week. And then, and then he was there when we shot. So it was very odd. It was a very odd way to do a sitcom. And I've been on sitcoms, uh, you know, uh, off and on uh, with, you know, I was, when I think about it, it's kind of mind blowing. Been on a sitcom with Valerie Harper, uh, John Hirsch, with uh, Bob Newhart. Uh, I mean, I've been on a lot of sitcoms with a lot of top-notch talent, you know, and I never saw anything like that. So I don't have any great Norm story other than to say I, I would love to know, you know, I, I, I haven't seen Norm in years, but it'd be interesting to say Norm would, if you could, would you do it differently, you know? Really, what was necessary was there had to be, he had to promote the hell out of the show. Uh, that's what had happened because it is great fun to watch. Uh, and if people just had an opportunity to watch it, I, I do not doubt that it would have caught on and lasted many I remember it was, a, it was a really funny show. Now, uh, starting in 2005, you joined, uh, you were, well, you became a permanent member of Rob Zombie's acting company. What, what was it about you and Rob that um, uh, that made you guys inseparable? Or well, I'd like to inseparable. I like that word. I don't know that he'd consider me inseparable. He's had a way to separate me after a couple of scenes. Uh, look, <laughs> Rob is. I I I went to see his concert. I, I thought this would be like if you said to Tippy Hendren, you know, hey, we're going to go see. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock. He's in the ice company, you know, because <laughs> I only knew Rob Zombie as a director. And then I go to his concert and I'm like, God, what's, what's going on here? It's craziness. And, you know, in, as a director, he's like, hey, Dan, maybe we can make that a little funnier. And as a, you know, as an entertainer, he's like, oh, <laughs> um, and he, so, I mean, I'm a huge fan because I don't know, by the way, I truly don't know how he does both. And as a director, he's a great director. I've said this time and again. I, you know, I, people cock off about his versions of those movies. Give me a break. They're better. Uh, fine. Write me letters. I don't care. <laughs> Halloween 2. His Halloween 2 is, is an opera compared to Halloween 2. You know what I mean? Right. Like, it's... Uh, it's bigger. It's better. It's it's got more to say. Maybe you don't like the story. Maybe you don't like the way you he went with it. But give me a break. The man is visually uh, he's a genius, you know. And and people should know by the way, all the directors I've worked with, I would say he is the most hands-on director when it comes to the what the movie looks like. Like, if he doesn't like how something's painted, he gets the paintbrush, he goes and he, he repaints it. I mean, I don't, I don't do that. <laughs> I mean, I'm, you know, I'm like, but it's just a set, like, I don't change my tires either. I call it AAA. Uh, I, if I'm on a set, I'm like, 
Did someone come in and could they fix that little thing there? Oh, thank you. That's so nice. Uh, because I, I don't know. I don't want to get paint. Usually I'm in the movie too, so I can't get paint on my car. But Rob does, Rob does it all. And then he writes the music for it. You know what I mean? So, uh, but what connected us primarily, and I hate to disappoint people, wasn't, uh, you know, I wish I could tell you that he was a huge fan of my acting. But the, the truth is he collected monster boys. I collected monster boys. And, you know, that's what brought us together when we first met and we started talking. Um, actually, the first time I met him was before the time I met him officially. I met him at a, at a store where they sold monster models. And a friend of mine says, you know, my buddy John Gilbert goes, oh, hello, Mr. Zombie. What a pleasure to meet you. I said, the hell did you call this guy? <laughs> well, that's how I really met Rob Zombie. And then we, we were at a screening of a Pirates in the Hill a year or two later and officially met there and exchanged numbers. Let's get together sometime. So that's interesting. It was really your, your common interest in horror uh, films and horror collectibles that, that really uh, uh, got, got that, that train moving. I think, I think so. Uh, you know, and, and hopefully the train keeps returning to the station. I mean, we do have a good time working together. And I look forward to I do kid him often about how, uh, you know, generally uh, I have some people in the movie when someone else directs it. And when I'm in his movie, tells me it too. So uh, we're, maybe we'll work our way up to a bigger part one day. Just uh, but the thing is about Rob too is I've been in a few movies that he's cut me out of. Like he, you know, and I'm never offended. Honestly, the chances that you're going to get cut out by a friend are greater than by a mortal enemy. Your mortal enemy be like, ah, see, he'll think that I'm taking it personal. No, I'm leaving this scene in the scene in the movie. But your friend is like, oh, Robo will understand. He's a filmmaker. I can't use it. I'm not using it. No, I'm not putting it in the movie. A couple of years ago, you got to uh, do your first motion capture performance in the L.A. Noir video game. Uh, how was it going from regular acting to transitioning to um, a motion capture acting? Well, I mean, acting is acting. Acting is acting. Uh, there's, there is no, like, you don't really act differently in motion capture other than you might be playing a, a role differently but in like LA Noir that was one of those great games where uh, it was different than how we do it now uh, because if you may or may not recall LA Noir had a very uh, the gameplay was was some weird magical thing where you were supposed to figure out if the character was lying or not lying so normally when they film you your head your body are all filmed together in LA Noir filmed our action and then we went back and we filmed just our heads uh, like immovable and your head did all the acting no get out of here what are you doing run and your head did everything and then they put your head on your body uh, because when the cop says you know did you kill that kid and you go no you know the, you, we were directed say it like you're lying say it like you're telling the truth say it like you really didn't kill the kid now say it like you killed him, but you don't want to get caught. Now say it like you killed him and you weren't happy about it and you're proud of it or whatever, you know. Um, 
it was very uh, it was it was very specific. Uh, then after that, I did uh, Dead Rising Three. Boy, that was a lot of fun uh, to really kind of see that, and that's when I really found it freeing because that's when the character I played and me were all one. And the guy I played was a big guy. And, you know, like, so, like, instead of wearing padding, you know, they just make you bigger. I don't know. I found it very freeing. I, I think you don't have a costume. You don't have a set. You only have the other actor. The only thing that's really difficult is if you have to hiss somebody, uh, you know, because your camera's in front of you and their camera's in front of them. And as you try to get your camera in there and their camera, like, because they could onto each other because you wear a camera like out, out from your face. Um, the thing about Grease is, by the way, the other thing I try to my mentor actors, I say, you know, watch old good movies with old good actors. Because when I walked in there, I knew the guy. I didn't know he was four foot tall. And I didn't know he had four arms. But I knew he was like Ernie Borgmine in every movie. Because <laughs> that's kind of what the thing was. So I went in and I kind of did that, you know, for the guy. That's how I performed it. And then, you know, two years later, you read it up and they said when they conceptualized the character, you know, they conceptualized him as Ernie Borman. So, you know, thank God that I, I was smart enough to recognize that, you know, that exactly was the, uh, you know, that's the, the archetype that they wanted. I could only have known that because... I watched so many old movies. And I'm probably one of the few people who had a wax Ernie Borgnine in his house. Um, there's that. What would you say is your best performance? And what would you say is your most uh, uh, flawed performance? Because, you know, sometimes actors will say, oh, well, I, I could have done a lot better with that role or I should have done this and what have you. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to talk about flawed performances. I don't want anybody to ask for their money back. You know, look, I, 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 I've grown as an actor. I'm a better actor than I was when I was a kid. I'm using the same instincts. I've, I've had life experiences that, uh, you know, have helped me kind of become a fuller, more intelligent actor. So, uh, I mean, I'm better than I was. Now I know I'm a little more director proof. You know what I mean? Like, now, if the director isn't good, I, I, I'm not reliant on him to guide me. I can, I can take care of that myself. Um, so that's what's, that's what's come with age, uh, is that I can fill in the parts that sometimes the creative people don't give you, whether the script isn't, uh, the script isn't fully executed or the director is unclear. You know, I'm very clear. And, and what's my best performance? I don't know. It's not that's an interesting question, but I don't know that it's it's for me to say. I have great joy in working on things that I write, uh, in seeing those come to fruition. I don't think that's I don't think that's ridiculous. But I also have had great opportunities, like playing Jay Leno and playing Gary Marshall, which I enjoy as much. Uh, but you know, the work in Star Wars has been a a blessing and and I think there's some other great stuff coming that uh, hasn't hasn't uh, it yet that 
think it's some really good work. But I'm getting older and wiser and smarter. And so, you know, my choices as an actor are actually uh, multiple. I'm smart enough to make other decisions. In 2017, you produced, wrote, and directed, and starred in the film uh, Getting Grace. Um, what, what made you want to uh, move behind the camera and direct uh, other actors and, and direct your own stories? Um, I've always written, I've always been a, a writer. I think I sort of play in first grade and I didn't even know how to write my name. So, I mean, always created stuff. Uh, and the reason that I couldn't do it before was because I was making uh, my living as an actor and that required 100% of my attention uh, to the details of that kind of life because I had a family. I had two kids and I had a wife and a house, you know, responsibilities and Catholic school to put the kids into. So it was a lot going on. So I just could not, uh, could not start another career. So what's really happened is over the course of time, I money away and I have a responsibility grown and, uh, I've had a different wife, so uh, this particular wife is very much my partner in this filmmaking. So I, I finally could become a director because I could really afford to be a director. I didn't have to. I didn't always have to be available to uh, to act. Uh, so you know, I've always wanted to. I always wrote scripts, and you know, so it just. Finally, the culmination of, of a, a 35 year, uh, you know, pre preparation, you know? Right. What, what advice would you give to actors who want to direct? Uh, start in the theater. Don't, don't think, well, I'll just do it in a movie. Uh, I've uh, started the theater, start and become a director uh, before you think that you could be a director you got to really be able to communicate with people listen i'm i'm you know i'm working on my thing now if you really watched the dailies you would think this this guy how did he even do this because in the middle of my my you know i'm i'm saying wait you got to come in a little sooner you in the background uh, i could tell you didn't cross at the right time you got to cross Remember, you're crossing when she's walking here, you're walking there. Like, because I know that when I get in the editorial, I, I won't be able to make the right choices right, if I can't, if everything else isn't right around me. So right. it's very difficult, but it's not impossible. So I started doing it in the theater. I've directed myself a number of theatrical plays. And you have to find a group of people who trust you to, like, tell them what they're doing wrong. Uh, but they never hear you tell yourself what you're doing wrong. But if they know you well enough, my my team in our theater company always could see me adjusting my performance. I was adjusting. I just didn't have. To. So I, I, you know, it's not as easy as it looks. But it's not. You know, it's not hard. Uh, directing and acting isn't hard. Directing, producing, hard because of all the decisions that you have to make while you're acting, uh, 
some of them, by the way, you know, complete, uh, like the guy you're screwing the most is you. I generally do my close-ups last. So when I'm like working on the call sheet for the next day and I'm saying this is the call time, I know that means that 12 hours before that will be my last chance to get my close-up right. Even if I have three hours to shoot, but only two hours to um, till that that cutoff. Understand what I'm saying? Like you, yeah. you, you know. So uh, you know, I'm I'm always thinking my performance. I'll really be able to fix while I'm shooting, but the other performances, you know, I, I need to worry about them because you know I'm clear on what I want. Right. Uh, let's get to a special segment where uh, we're going to take um, audience questions. Uh, we're going to take questions oh. from, I, I submitted a little questionnaire to people saying, hey, uh, we got an interview with Danny Roebuck coming up and uh, have any questions for Mr. Roebuck, please submit them. So I'm going to, we're going to take a few questions. Oh, Laurel, uh, Laurel Fetterbush asks, are you really as sweet and likable as you were on Matlock? Uh, yes, Laurel, I am a uh, sweet like uh, I'm not the raving jerk that I played on uh, Criminal Minds. Uh, I'm more like the Although, uh, what, what did annoy me on Matlock is they made me such a good... Like, there was an episode where we did a triathlon and an 85-year-old guy beat me. <laughs> 30-year-old man at the height of my physical workout every day. I ran every day. I didn't have an ounce of fat on me. And still the 85-year-old guy, like that was, and I, it was a point where I finally said, come on now, the 85-year-old <laughs> guy doesn't get to finish before me. Um, <laughs> so I try, I try, I try to be, uh, I, I try to lead the kind of life that uh, um, would make my God creative. Val Morris asks, how involved was Andy Griffith in your uh, character's development? Oh, he was, I, I mean, look, he wanted another funny guy on the show. Uh, so that's, I think they had other assistants, but they were so serious. And he realized that as we were getting toward the end of the show, we had the last three years, you know, he knew maybe we'd have a year, but we ended up getting three. He wanted to be doing more comedy. So, you know, that's why I came on. So, I, you know, I could do the drama stuff if I needed to, but he could count on me. I truly believe to be a good foil and to be a good goofball. I think he really knew what he wanted and then gave me the opportunity. John Curtis asks, what was it like working with Andrew Davis on The Fugitive? Great guy. Uh, I don't know what else to say. He's just a terrific human being. He's got a beautiful family. Uh, watch his kids grow up in Christmas cards. Uh, isn't that funny? I haven't probably seen them. I saw them when we made the movie that I saw him about seven, eight years ago, but I haven't seen him since. He's a, he's a, he's a terrific talent. Uh, you know, another, you know, great example, by the way, we we're talking about Peter Himes earlier. Like, uh, um, here's, here's a guy who, uh, was a shooter, became a great director. Um, that's that's really kind of cool. And then U.S. Marshals directed was direct, and then U.S. Marshals was directed by a great editor who became a great director, Stuart Baird, you know, who edited Super 
Batman and the Omen and you know amazing movies. And then you know he's now he's he's back to editing and he's the one responsible in all this new uh, the new James Bond. He's he's been doing a lot of that on those. A uh, very smart man. I'd like to see him. I haven't seen him. Whatever happened to Andrew so Davis? Andrew, I know he hasn't directed in a long time. Uh, he directs. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll bet you if we looked him up, he probably directed something three years ago or two. You know? uh, he probably also does a lot of commercial work. Oh, okay. You know, you know uh, directors definitely have. Well, that's a really great way to stay you know, living at a level. Frank Murray asks, what was it like working with Leonard Nimoy on Star Trek The Next Generation? Well, I mean, in the first place, what do you say to Leonard Nimoy? You know, it's like working with Harrison Ford. I mean, what do you say to Harrison Ford? At one point, it was just Harrison Ford and me, the two of us, alone, sitting on the, you know, the camera lens cases, all those cases that... But if the movie starts sitting on it, you're sitting on it. And I looked over at Harrison Ford and I said, I don't know what to say to you. Because uh, what do you say? How was it on Tatooine? Like, what do you say to the guy? So to Leonard, I really tried to stay out of his time. He was very busy. Um, and and he spoke briefly sometimes, but I, I was, very, you know, very keen to not annoy him. I mean... Standing on a set, and you're wearing pointy ears too, <laughs> you know. And you're like, "It's fuck. There's me. It's <laughs> I don't know what else I want in my life. Tell tell us about your upcoming projects. I know you just uh, wrapped uh, two films recently. Uh yeah, I've. Uh, um, I've got a lot of stuff coming up. So much of it top secret. Isn't that weird? I'm at a point in my life where uh, I keep falling into these situations where I can't talk about it. Uh, like the, the Hail Mary, my movie, I think people like very much. It's a very funny nun and finds a guy who needs attention and she cons him into creating a football team for her all boys school. So they might so the Hail Mary of the title play is his last chance to get life right. Uh, and then we made another movie called Lucky Louie that let me brag about my co-creator on that. There was a beautiful young lady, uh, and I don't want to write any letters. I can say she's beautiful. My daughter, um, she wrote and directed the movie with me. Uh, did both these movies in this COVID world, and, and neither movie did anybody ever get COVID. Uh, wow. So, you know, with the precautions we took were as good as we could take on our budget, but, you know, it still proved, uh, we proved, proved to be lucky. And that movie is about an old retired cop who can't solve a bank robbery after 50 years. So ultimately, he teamed up with his, his uh, Bible study, comprised of four ex-convicts, and he arrested and rehabilitated. They, together, they try to figure out how to solve this crime. So that's that's lucky. Louie. Um, both quite they're quite fun. Uh, we're almost done with Lucky Louie, and we're uh, just beginning uh, post the Hail Mary. So I would think one movie or both would be out next year. 
It's amazing that you were able to complete uh, both movies without anyone getting COVID. You know, you always hear stories about, you know, these film crews where like one or two people get, get COVID and then the whole thing is shut down. What's the secret to keeping uh, control you know, of COVID on a set? Maybe making faith-based films is the secret. Maybe I'm making <laughs> movies that God wants me. Uh, so, you know, I had a joke about one of the, the crew. We not only had no COVID, we had perfect weather in the Hail Mary. I needed wow. rain for one scene. Guess when it rained? The day I scheduled the scene, we started shooting the scene. It started raining, and then we were done, and then the rain went away. And <laughs> wow. Afterwards, one of the actors said, you must have a reel in with Jesus, you know, and I said, well, I didn't name the movie after it. Uh, so that worked out. Man. But uh, uh, I didn't understand, like, Robert Pattinson on Batman got COVID. And I thought, how do you get COVID? How did the guy play Batman? How, how did they not protect him? Uh, it's possible. You know, you just make sure that you mask the people who could make the other. Um, and then you, you, you know, there's no screwing around. In our world, we just said, if you're sick, don't come to work. Don't come to work and get tested. Don't. Might be sick. Don't come to work. I, the great news is, I'm the writer and the director and the producer. So if you don't come to work, I'll rewrite. You. I'll, I'll figure a workaround, and no one will ever let that work. If you're, you're you know, smart enough writer, letting some of that come away. That is the thing that I don't understand. Even in these big movies, they don't track. I, I never. You know, characters act in a way that's completely, they say, this is what I, you know, I have OCD. Characters will say, I have OCD. And then you'll go into their car and there's shit all in the car. <laughs> Didn't you just make a point about that? But then the actor's like, I want stuff in the car. So, you know, <laughs> uh, gotta be smart. Gotta be smart. I'm smart. That's me. I'm afraid I was movie maker. I'm smart. <laughs> so this lesson is to all you uh, uh, future filmmakers who are watching this. If you make a faith-based film, God will be in your favor. Yeah, if you really are, you know, doing the right thing, it, it might work. Look, would it have been if I was making horror movies? Would it have would it have worked out? That really don't know. Uh, I mean, I just don't know. But you, you know, you got to do the best you can for your crew. And well, before we leave, can you please leave us with some words of wisdom? <laughs> Probably not. I mean, I could try to say something smart already. What's the subject? Where's the wisdom about? Show business? Yeah. Here's my advice. Or, or actor, life in general. My advice. Well, this, this works for everyone. Uh, remember what I was saying earlier about we are cogs in, in, a, in a greater world. Part of a greater story. We have our own story, and it's a very good story. Good. Uh, we're part of a bigger story. So, I mean, I think it's best to remember that. that uh, say this to actors. You know, you know what the main the, the main thing you could do to remind everyone that you respect them. Hang up your clothes. At the end of the shoot, I take my clothes off. I hang my clothes up. Even on lost, healthy, dirty. Clothes and I hang them back up. Why? Because it tells the person who has to come into your trailer to get your crap. You recognize their time 
valuable here and making their life easy uh, is not something that takes but another moment of your life make their life easy because otherwise they got to come into your trailer and if the stuff's not being dry cleaned that night they got to hang and they got families to go home you know what I mean right. so you know just remember part of if you're uh, uh, in show business you're one factor of a million factors. It doesn't matter even if you have the lead in the movie. Uh, you're, you, you may not be as important that day as the helicopter flying overhead. You know what I mean? Right. So that's, I, I think if we all just remember not our place, but our humanity and, and realize that I next to us is human. Help them, you know. Turn around when you walk in the door. Turn around and make sure someone's not walking behind you. Don't close the door in anybody's face. Very, very wise words. Well, Danny, I can't thank you enough for uh, being a, a guest on this show. Yeah, I'm not so uh, smart, but I, I do. <laughs> I, I think you're a lot uh, smarter than you give yourself credit for. So don't, don't beat yourself up. Uh, I had a very good time, Colin, and I and I. So impressed that I'm the first guest yet. We already had questions. Must uh, it must be quite special? Um, but uh, listen, I, I look forward to myself watching and following you because there's one thing I love, and that is character actor uh, and actor. Well, then thank you very much, Danny. It means a lot that uh, you decided to come on my show. Uh, this has been a great interview, and you've been been a great guest. All right, you have a great night, and to everybody listening and watching, you know, be the best, be the best person you can be. All right, thanks so much, Danny. Well, that about does it for this episode of What a Character. Thanks for listening. Now, I want to give a special thanks to Daniel's wife and manager Tammy Ann Roebuck for helping set up this interview. And I also want to give a special shout out to Channel of Peace. It is a nonprofit organization founded by Daniel and his wife Tammy that is dedicated to producing faith-based family films. With the help of cash donations, in-kind donations, and grants, they have so far produced two feature films that are due for release pretty soon. So if you want to show the Robux your support and their endeavors to create squeaky clean family films with a godly message, then you can help by making a tax-deductible contribution to their organization. All you have to do is visit a channelforpeace.org, click on donate, and you will be taken to the donation page where you can offer your endowment. You can find the link to the website in the episode description, or if you're watching this on YouTube, you can just click on the link below. Now, before we end this episode, I just want to remind you that if you love the show and you want us to grow in popularity, you can help us do that by rating and reviewing this podcast. You can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or Spotify or whatever platform you stream and download podcasts from. You can even leave a review of our podcast on our website at whatacharacterpodcast.com. Just click on Rate Show and you'll be taken to a page where you can give your critique of the show. And while you're there, you can even donate to our podcast by clicking on the PayPal link and submitting your desired amount. And don't forget to subscribe to our email mailing list if you want to receive email alerts about upcoming shows or even receive email-exclusive episodes of our show. You can do this by typing in your name and email address on the right side of the homepage and clicking on subscribe. Now, if you want to reach out to us, please feel free to do so. 
If you have any guest suggestions or you just want to tell us how great you think the show is, you can do so by sending us an email at westgrovemedia at gmail.com. You could even leave us a voice message on the show website by clicking on the microphone button on the bottom right and recording a message. And please subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you stream and download podcasts from. And if you watch us on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. And hey, if you're watching this on YouTube right now, please give this video a like. All in all, your support will definitely help us not only make the podcast successful, but it will be greatly appreciated as well. Anyway, that about does it for this episode of What a Character. Join us next week for part one of our interview with Romeo Carey, son of actor Timothy Carey, where he will discuss his father's reputation for being the most fired actor in cinema history, his father's relationship with Stanley Kubrick, and his mentorship of legendary rock musician Frank Zappa. It's all that and more on next week's What a Character. Thank you for listening and take it easy. Bye. What do you get when you send a guy back in time? A massive eruption. Especially when he meets his ultimate fantasy. Oh, God. Foot. A cave girl. Now, let's move on to the biggie. (laughs) Rex is taking the trip of his life back 25,000 years and loving every century. Cave Girl from Crown International Pictures.